Thomas Beller's father was just 52 years old when he died. And Beller is now just a little bit older than that. In his recent piece in The New Yorker, Beller writes that at some point in his early 20s, it occurred to him that his father's life was like a map for all of the stages of life, all of the stages up to the age of 52. And so now Beller is a bit mapless. And in his recent essay, he tries to explain how that feels and what it might mean for all of the years to come. Thomas Beller is the director of creative writing at Tulane University. He's also the author of numerous essays and commentaries, as well as several books. The most recent is Lost in the Game, a book about basketball. Thomas Beller, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thomas, I came to your piece by the way of a Facebook post from The New Yorker. And what really captivated me was this absolute outpouring of hundreds of stories from other people who who had also fallen on this on, on Facebook, who were experiencing life past the age at which a parent or in some cases, both parents had died. And just in post after post, these people were just really opening up about what that experience had been like for them. And so I was wondering, did, did you suspect that in tackling this topic that it would cause such a wellspring of story sharing from other people? Uh, I didn't anticipate or think about that. Uh, I, I just um, was rather preoccupied with the strangeness of the story I was telling. And then just as one is kind of glad that it had its day in the New Yorker. And uh, I didn't see those responses until sometime later, even after they took place, I sort of stumbled backwards onto that post and had the similar observation you did that this was um, so visceral. What is that like for a writer when you see that? When you, when you, when you do, because we're not supposed to read the comments, right? Yeah. Like you're supposed to avoid that. But this was, it was really something fascinating. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I sometimes used to think that, like, the shortest route to making a writer was just to somehow, like, absent the father. Like, that would be, like, ingredient number one. Now it seems that, like, that's obviously there's many flourishing, talented writers who had long and happy relationships with their father. But I seem to maybe maybe it's my neck of the woods or something. I am aware of a lot of either dead fathers or absent fathers in writer lives. And, you know, the piece that you are talking about had a full circle quality because pretty much the first short story that I ever published was at the New Yorker, which as you can imagine, just completely blew my mind. And well, yeah, because you were a kid, right? You were like, you're well, still in school. I was, I was technically still at graduate school and I was definitely by writer standards, a kid. If you don't, if you want to hear it out, I'd rather enjoy the story. I want to, can I tell me you my story of the, Oh my whole, God. Yeah. The happy story. I had been peppering a guy, Roger Angel with letters like dear Roger Angel, I would like to work at the New Yorker. This was like coming out of college. And there was a moment a couple of years into that process where I got an, a phone call from somebody at the New Yorker saying, we may have a spot in the messenger room. 
And I didn't get that job, but I did at some point send in a story to Roger that I printed it out, put it in a manila envelope and bicycled it because I got around and still do on a bicycle. So, and it was very cold. It was like this time of year, actually, almost come to think of it very close to exactly this time of year and already dark. And I got it there right before the office closed. And about um, several weeks later, I got a call. I was on the phone with the bank because I'd lost my bank card. So I asked the person who was taking the information to send me a new one to hold on, took the other call. The man on the phone said, this is Roger Angel at The New Yorker. We liked your story. We'd like to use it. And then I put the phone down and it rang. And that was the phone saying, you're on the other line. And I realized it was the guy from the bank who was still there, very politely. And I said, when I realized who it was, I said, oh my God, do you realize that you're talking to a different Thomas Beller than the one you were talking to before? <laughs> and he paused for quite some time. And then he finally said, is this Thomas Beller with account number? Da, 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 da. And I was like, yes, 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 same account. <laughs> but let me, and then I told him the whole story and he was pretty cool. We had a nice, like happy thing. So this is a huge the, the, digression. The anchor guy on the phone was really happy for you. Yeah, it took a minute there to kind of get past the technicalities. And then he was, we had a, a moment. And the reason I've allowed this digression to go on, besides that it's obviously kind of a cheerful memory, is the subject matter of that first story was similar to this one. In fact, that uh, it was a story about a sophomore in college who comes home for winter break and is generally kind of alienated from his house and his, everything is weird. And it gets into this growing up in an apartment with his mother and his father having died. And then there's a I don't want to write, it's called a different kind of imperfection. It was in my first book called Seduction Theory, if I may plug that. And it was a collection of stories. And this is by way of saying um, it's, it's a difficult topic. And to see that hundreds of people were so forthcoming about this facet of having lost a father at a young age, because not all, I, my dad died when I was nine. A lot of those people were people who'd lost their parents when they were adults and were just reflecting on what it was like to live, to be an older age than that. I, that's what I took away from that was like, wow, it's really a profound experience. Uh, losing anyone you love is a profound experience. And then when you get into the realms of like your best friend, a sibling, which is not something I've experienced, a mother, which not would I've not experienced or a father, it's, it's got just so many dimensions. Yeah. You were, you were nine when your father passed away. And so you had a long time to go before you reached 52, which was the age that he was when he passed of cancer. And you described this sort of relationship with your dad over those years. I, I imagine, you know, it's, it's sort of a running conversation maybe or something. Maybe like if... He would have been one of your first calls, right? When you had your first piece published in the New Yorker, it probably wouldn't have been a banker that you told, right? That's funny. Um, I probably wouldn't have lost my bank card. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, that's, a, that's a crazy thing to say. You know, I, I don't, I want to be clear about this. Whatever dynamic I had with my passed away father, it was not um, a explicit conversation with him. It was more of a completely intuitive sense that whatever I was going through, he'd had some version of that. 
although you know he was a, a immigrant he had been run out of Vienna in 1938 because of the Nazis I mean he's my experience of life was so plush and easy in comparison if I think about it in those terms so I wasn't having a dialogue with him but it was a sense that there was just a precedent for my existence you know even if I wasn't there to tell me well when I was your age this or that happened and I only noticed that when I when it was no longer there it's part of what that piece was about you you wrote in that piece that if one's age is a tally of years months days hours then one could say that outliving someone is the equivalent of outscoring him in the terminology of nba stats you would rise above him on the minutes played list but you you also wrote that you didn't really know the exact day it would happen and you didn't check until you were pretty sure that it had already happened. Like you said, you'd like once the experience had happened. Why do you think it is that you had avoided sort of doing that math up till that point? Well, I guess two reasons. The first is simply it was just a, a difficult and painful subject that I consciously or unconsciously just decided to avoid. And I think beyond that, you know, as I get into with the piece, you turns out in this day and age, it's not at all difficult to calculate uh, the number of days and for that matter, hours and seconds between, you know, some date in 1922 in this case. And geez, I just realized he would have been a hundred this fall. Well, how about that? So 1922 and, and whatever day you're in, and that's both very satisfying, but as as is the case with so much of our modern world, the precision of information is not a substitute. It doesn't resolve the emotional component of whatever you're dealing with. So the fact that I had available to me a very precise metric by which to measure how long he had lived or how long it had been, you know, how much more that, or less than that number than I had lived was both a great resource, but I understood, I think intuitively it, it wasn't going to, resolve anything or make me feel any better or give me any particular satisfaction. It's just information. Um, and then if I may, you know, this whole, this piece appears in a book that's about basketball and the piece itself is not, it, it, there's a big basketball irony built into the piece because I ended up, it turns out I had a game, a big game that day, but. Well, can we talk about that irony really quick? Cause it's, it's really, so you, you go back and you check. You, 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 after you're pretty sure that you've passed this marker in time and you find out that your father's lived for, well, your father, he had lived for 19,240 days. And then you mapped out the same number of days in your own life. And it turns out that you reached that same mark on a day that was memorable for this completely other sort of score. And, and here is where you and and I should say you are 52 years old so what we're about to tell people is pretty uh, I think it's pretty awesome I hope it doesn't embarrass you what I, what happened on that day book, yeah. <laughs> what happened on that day oh I went crazy in a game of half court in my mellow ball over 30 league at the New Orleans JCC and I scored uh, over 100 points you you didn't you scored 116 points yeah yeah, I know. It's crazy. Was the other team just furious at you? 
I don't know. I was sort of in a trance. What can I say? The most salient thing about that that is in the piece and that I'm in a way most proud of is the unbelievable fact that when the scorekeeper says that, Tom, you have 90, I panic and I start to obsess about the fact I'm not going to make it to 100 and it's going to be this big failure. And isn't that what life does? It, it, you have the game of your life, score 99 points and feel like you're a disappointment. And that that's how we got to 116 because <laughs> I was already in a zone. And then that just sent me into peals of distress uh, that I that this would happen, that this is the way this is going to play out that I, I go cold at the end and score 99 and there's has to be some level of disappointment. Right. But you're a writer also, which means there's also like copious material there. If you, if you go to 99, right. I mean, like, are, are you already writing that story in your head no, as you're playing in this game? Honestly, I'm not. I mean, there, one of the things that I don't explore in depth in the book, but it comes up briefly the, the I took a break from drinking at some point and it happened in this strange window of time when I was writing about Jason Kidd and, and the nets and the med it was going back and forth to the Meadowlands and and I start to later reflect this issue of alcoholism, which is the definition I was striving to avoid by taking a break as opposed to having to do a more formal do go to meetings. I started to realize that my relationship to the basketball really flourished in the wake of that. I don't mean I love I, I was playing it before, but the level of intensity and focus I was giving to working out outside of the basketball context and then working on my game in the basketball context to a degree that's kind of unseemly for a guy who has family responsibilities and other things to be doing. I felt like it was a substitute just in the way you seek refuge in a bar. You don't have to think about things. And in a basketball dynamic, when you're playing in a game, that's hence the title lost in the game, you can just disappear and get into this space. So that's actually probably one of the few places in my life or t time frames in my life when I probably have that switch turned off for the most part and I'm not aware. And certainly in that game, I was so focused. I guess I was focused on just shooting the ball and then I became completely hysterical. I became hysterical. I started to want to cry. I, I, it took a lot of, and then I did manage, you know, but um, as I mentioned, you know, this is an over 30 league and this particular, the, uh, the opposing team, the, the most athletic guy had a knee brace on. I'm sure he was, in excruciating pain the whole time. I got hot from outside, whatever. Um, you know, but I'm glad that this resonated with you. And I'm also glad you saw that thing on Facebook because I also, when I came across it, was really struck by this, it turns out, shared feeling that um, it's not just losing someone. If it's a parent losing someone, it's the this new second loss where you're no longer even have their life to measure against yours and you're just older than them. Yeah. Well, you also lose a person who you could have told this to, right? Your dad, you write, your dad wasn't really a sports guy, but you think he might've had something to say about that 100 point game. I have no idea, but I mean, it, it also threw into certain relief. You know, one of the things that was interesting to me before I wrote this piece, um, there's a book by John Edgar Wideman, the novelist about his very illustrious life as a basketball star and division one scholarship kid. And, and he wrote a book called hoop roots, which is not a title I particularly like, but the book has some very interesting stuff. And at one point he goes, we go to the playground in search of our fathers, plural. And he's a black guy who grew up in this, you know, for him, it's literal. His dad was a good basketball player. He played Weidman played with guys who 
had played against his father, but the line resonated quite a bit. And eventually it became a bit of a theme in this book. Somehow that there's another piece about a going to play in a memorial game for someone who died on 9-11, whose now teenage son is playing in a pickup game. And the wife reports that the, she had this beautiful basketball court in the backyard. And she's like, what am I going to do with that? And then her suddenly fatherless four-year-old sort of wanders out right then and starts bouncing a ball, you know, and turns into a bit of a prodigy. So this notion of, of basketball specifically, or maybe just some kind of sports as a surrogate, I don't know, you know, it sort of floods through the book a little bit. At the time you were finishing up this book, your son was just about the age you were when your father died, and he had begun showing an interest in basketball, um, and you were taking him to the courts to play together. He's 11 now, and and you guys still play together, yeah? Well, to be clear, the, the two things to be said about this. One is my son was avid, was decisively and explicitly uninterested in sports as late as like seven or eight. He may have even said, I hate sports. And I was like, I guess I'm just oh, not going to have... to the heart. Well, whatever. I was like, you know, how about a catch, you know? No. And then it flipped very quickly. I think I'd been taking him to Pelicans games. Zion had shown up. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the fact that like, where's dad? It's dinner time. You know, he's like, oh, he's playing basketball. That would happen a lot. Who knows? Who knows? And then when it flipped, it flipped pretty quickly. And so then I was like, all right, I'm I'm going out to play to the basketball court. Do you want to come? And I would shoot around with him and do father, son, you know, play games with him, coach him up a little bit. And the other half of this is I have a, he has an older sister who's rather athletic, but <clears throat> as a little kid, she did things like ballet and so forth. She's just gotten into team sports and she's on the JV basketball team out of the blue, never played basketball before about two months ago. So she's suddenly looking at me like you've published a book and there's nothing about women's basketball in this book. What's up with that? And she later talked to me about the fact that, you know, I was like, you should come down. And she's like, you know, there are no girls there. I was like, well, yes, they are. There's like, no, there's little girls, but there's really, it's like almost all guys out there. And that was, I haven't even processed that yet. I just wrote a book about what was in front of my face and what I was thinking about. And mostly that wasn't WNBA or high school and women's basketball. But all of a sudden that is on my mind. And I have to add Brittany Griner further focused me on that. So the issue of the second generation, if you will, is one to be addressed in the future. Do you think you will? Do you think there is another? I mean, you, we say like kind of, you know, uh, non-literally often we say, oh, well, that's a whole nother book. But but is that like literally a whole nother book for you, do you think, down the, well, down the line? I have been tweaked about the absence of women in this book by a few different uh, people in either an interview situation like this or the guy that reviewed it in the New York Times rather favorably, I want to say, but did have a few complaints. And he mentioned that. That caught my attention. I won't pretend that it didn't. And what really is interesting to me, if I'm looking ahead, is I'm a, at the age, way beyond the age where my main interaction, you would think, with the sport of basketball would be as a coach. 
but that is not the case. I've done a little bit of coaching. I did a basketball camp thing once, but I'm thinking, well, there's probably a bit more there on the subject of basketball. I may, maybe I will get a bit involved at some point in coaching. I expect that to completely blow my mind, frankly, uh, but it's a conspicuous absence. So I feel like between the fact that the women have not been addressed, that my daughter's interested, here comes my son, who's very interested, who's demanding I come to him in the morning before school with a pillow so he can practice playing through contact and stuff like that. And uh, not that that happens often, but the wish has been expressed. Uh, you know, there may be more. There may be more. Hmm. You, you wrote that you used to worry that you wouldn't even make it as far in age as your father did. Um, you now have by a half decade. And I don't want to be morbid here, but I imagine that you've probably thought about what might happen if you passed, like what your impact would be on your children if they had to go through what you went through at such an early age. Well, that's a very heavy and very personal question. I appreciate it. Um, I'll just, I don't want to dive too far into it, but except to say that, yeah, I, although I assume even parents who didn't, who are not, who didn't lose their own father or mother at a young age. I imagine every parent has fleeting fantasies. They're both, it's a weird cocktail of feelings. There's a tremendous sense of protectiveness and love for your kids. There's a tremendous kind of primally narcissistic feeling of like, oh my God, I'm going to die. That's a very, if you, if you feel that, if we all know it, but the moments when you feel it are actually very strange. And um, so yes, it does. It has drifted in and out of my thoughts. And I try to resolve those thoughts by thinking, thank God I'm here. Hmm. Go do your homework. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're living in a world in which life expectancies are rising. Human longevity is the subject of a lot of research and investment. And it's likely that many of us are going to end up outscoring our parents and grandparents, as you put it. And, but not just by a few points, right? Not just like dad made it to 70 and I'll make it to 71, but a lot of people are going to outscore their parents by a lot of points. What do you think happens when that sort of experience is no longer an outlying experience as it was for you? I don't know. I think, I think there's a parallel thing that's going on in which we're living in an era of tremendous technological change. And there's such profound fundamental quantitative differences in like what child is like childhood is like now versus our childhood, let alone our parents' childhood. Conversely, I think there's a sort of um, recency bias, a kind of vanity of the present, where we think we are living in the most wacky, unbelievable, shocking time that previous generations who just were like farmers and passed out all their traditions and tools from one, you know. But I think that's certainly looking at the last hundred or so years, I think that's not true. I think every generation has had to deal with unbelievable upheaval. You know, certainly my own parents had to go running out of their their homes, their home countries, their home languages in this extremely fraught, the Nazis, these people are going to come and kill you. And um, I mean, just since I'm talking to you in Utah, I happen to be reading Joan Didion's book, Where I Am From, 
where I was from. It's called Where I Was From, and it details her ancestors' migration across the country, you know, in covered wagon. And that's quite interesting because there's these scraps of tradition or sometimes physical amulets that get handed down or letters. Um, but they mostly serve to just highlight, sometimes they serve to highlight the similarities, like, oh, her great-great-great-grandmother had a recipe for India relish that she can make now, she being Joan Didion. But there's also this sense that they were living in, an, the, the, as human beings, they were the same, but it's very different. So that's my answer to your question, that I think it's going to be very weird. It's a weird experience to have, but then that you don't want to downplay the general weirdness and novelty of all experience. That's Thomas Beller. He's the director of creative writing at Tulane University and the author of a recent piece in The New Yorker called On Outscoring My Father, as well as a new book called Lost in the Game, a book about basketball. Thomas Beller, thank you. I can't thank you enough. Your questions were really thoughtful and I'm weirdly excited to think of, I have some presence in Utah, which is a state I've enjoyed being in. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>